for, for a few weeks now, we've been, look, we've been unpacking the theme of a life after God's own heart. And um, David's, uh, David's easy when it comes to illustrating all these processes. But when it comes to some of the tougher issues, which aren't so much where he just makes these instinctive decisions based on his value set that change the world, he experienced the same things that we do where he gets it wrong and he just completely blows it up and blows up those close to him as well. And then he's going to try and pick up the pieces of that. And so I wanted to speak into how someone who's got, who's got the heart after God's heart in his heart, but still makes some dumb choices, um, how, do you, how do you pull that back? How do you get back on true north after that? And so the low-hanging fruit obviously would be, let's talk about David and Bathsheba, where he was overcome by a spirit of stupid and um, did some things that should never have happened. And that, but that's just too easy. That's too easy. And it's too easy for us to be one step detached from that because not all of us make that sort of a mistake so overtly, do we? But what happens in the heart? What about the small things? What about the innocence or feeling like the innocent crimes that we all commit when there are things that we do that no one needs to know about, don't seem to affect anyone, and it's like a victimless crime? What about all those things? How did he deal with that? And so what I want to do is bring what probably is an extreme example of that and yet really does display the principles that never change. And so today I'm talking about the instance of when David took it upon himself to conduct a census, right? Which you think, what's the problem with a census? Well, well, we'll go into there in a minute. But what we're going to see is that small things, small choices, ultimately lead to big ramifications. Small things from little things. It's the stuff that we can't see. It's the stuff that the people around us don't see that are actually the most dangerous because everything that ultimately ends up in our life as the train wrecks that we sometimes are a part of always start the same way. They start with the small things that no one sees and they're allowed to grow. It all starts here. And so if we can nip these things in the bud, we're far better off. Uh, now, just to illustrate, how many times would you have heard, as I would have heard through life, um, the story, the age-old story of regret? You know, I, I worked hard, I earned big, I, I, I paid a price, I lost my family along the way, you know, but um, you know, now I'm alone and I've got the, got the bank account, but I haven't got the relationships, you know. And how, how many times have we heard that story where life, it's not till the end of the story where we realise we got, we got the, all the building blocks so wrong. Or the business person, you know, and I have heard this one a number of times where there's just that confession that it's just that wrapped in so much regret it started off with a couple of little instances of, of dodging tax or cutting some corners or doing some things that no one needs to know about. You get in business, I know I was in business, you get opportunities to do things and it's like, no one's going to pay a price for this, you know. And, and, and in the end, someone pulls a string on that from the tax department and there's a business lost and, and a will to live lost at the same time. You think, oh, it just, why did I allow myself to go down a path that I couldn't pull myself back from in the end? And so you and me make decisions every day that we think are grey. Is this right or wrong? It might be small. Uh, it may be not the very best of us that comes out and we, we do something that's just, we know there's better. There's a better choice to be made. But we assume it won't matter because it hurts no one. And it might be as simple as uh, flirting with someone. It might be a secret addiction that we would have. It might be working, uh, wasting work time, blowing on social media, it, it could be as simple as that, it could be dodgy dealings. All of us will have an area, an unseen pocket of our life that no one else needs to know about that we know is there and presents us all these opportunities. 
And we figure it's a victimless crime. No one's getting hurt, no one's paying, and God's got bigger things to do than worry about me chucking a chewing gum in my, pack, in my pocket at Coles. You know, who's going to care? But this is where it all starts because this mindset leads to bigger things. And it's this very mindset that led David to conduct a census and the ramifications of that meant that in the end, 70,000 people lost their lives from a victimless crime. How does this all happen? So let's have a look at this. If I haven't got your attention yet, I probably will shortly. So the, the, the dates of this uh, preempt the message we did a few weeks ago where David brought the ark up uh, into Jerusalem and it postdates the time where he, um, as a new king, invaded the city of the Jebusites, which we now know as Jerusalem. So he's conquered Jerusalem, the unconquerable town at the time. He's taken that and now he's, his star is rising. But not just, this is important for us to know in this guy's life, because you may or may not have had this season yet. Um, Robert Clinton calls this season the moment of convergence, where all the areas of your life have, have worked together now to become the person you're always meant to be. And it's all starting to happen for you. And you've, you've taken this journey, perhaps from obscurity, to being the rising star. And he's the rising star of all rising stars. And, he's still, and the graph is still shooting up to the right and up, and it's accelerating. So he's now gone from being the guy in, in charge of the ragtag bunch of fugitives to now being the king of Israel, and he's kicking goals, and he can't help himself but win. So it, it's all going on. But everyone's paying attention to him now. The whole world is looking. Every other empire on earth now knows the name of this guy, David. So they're all watching him. But the trouble with empires and the mindset that David's now starting to adopt, because he's now a peer of the empire, of the empires, Egypt, Assyria, Persia, the Greeks, the Romans, they're all, they all have their day and he's now, he's now eyeball to eyeball with these guys. But the trouble with that mindset is that empires rise and they fall because they're man-made structures doing things man's way and they appear through the river of history like bubbles that just come and go. The empires have always been there. Before David, Egypt had risen it had been conquered then by the Hittites and they went into a couple of hundred years of obscurity. They came back, they got higher than ever. They're now waning again. It's all bubbling over there for the Medes and Persians. They're starting to become somebody. Greeks on the rise. And here's, and here's David and all these empires. So he's now feeling in a sense, he's competing with these guys. Now I've got to look him in the eye and, and say, I'm doing better than you because I'm the new big guy in town. And so he's doing all this and he doesn't realise the difference between the empires of, the, of this world, which continue to rise and fall. Since this time, we've seen the Greeks, the Romans, the, the Turks, the Franks, the English. More are on the horizon now. The sabres are still rattling out there and always will. And, and they're, the, they're the empires of this world. But he's supposed to be a man of the kingdom. And God didn't want a king particularly. It wasn't his idea. He had judges and prophets. He had his own way because he's supposed to be the king and it's his kingdom. So to put a man in that place was never going to be plan A, but well, we're here now. But, but it was God's people that he was concerned for and he was going to watch this guy like a hawk. When we know what happened to Saul, he took things into his own hands and he ended up losing the kingdom. So now he's David, he's done everything right. He's, he's just knocked the ball out of the park. But now he's at this moment, which is the, the moment of greatest potential fall for all of us, is that we're doing things that everyone's impressed, but no one's looking too closely. Where the momentum in our life is driving hard. And that momentum, even if we do something wrong now, that's gonna keep on going now for a while. So he's in that very dangerous spot. 
So here he is, and he now begins to take a thing called a census. So let's pick it up in 1 Chronicles 21. And you think, what's the big deal? Well, let's have a look at that. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. So the devil's behind this. Why would he care less? He, it's not like he doesn't know. So the, the evil one incited David to take a census. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, and parenthetically, FYI, Joab was more brutal than David. This guy was a monster. If you look at the history of what he's done, and he's just, he's just not long killed Abner, the guy that should have had the role that he's now got. So Joab's not really a man of God. He's not a sensitive, woke, you know, that prayerful sort of character. He's a barbarian. And he pulls up David in this moment because he instantly knows this thing smacks of pride. Joab replied, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. May the Lord, the king, my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? So here's Job, the ungodliest kid in town, telling the king, mate, watch out. This is not what the God we serve would be about. He could see it was unnecessary. It was human centric. And it would make Israel engage in empires the same way every other empire is doing business. And according to Exodus 30, Exodus 30 verse 12, which I don't know whether Joab knew it or not, he certainly knew the, the inference of it, it was up to God in Israel, only God could call a census. Only God could command a census be taken. It was not hit for his initiative to take because the census in Israel was uh, connected to the whole idea of redemption and atonement for sin. So the census were taken so that we, they knew how much sacrifice had to be made to atone the nation. That was the only reason Israel would take a census. David's taken one to, to look at his peers. Interestingly, if you're a bit of a scholar or even if you're not, you, if you look at the same story in the book of Samuel, um, chapter 24, it says that God incited David. Convenient for all the atheists out there who want to say, look at how much the Bible contradicts itself. One says God incited David to take a census. The other one says Satan incited David. So it's like, <laughs> pick one. Like pretty, pretty black and white. Um, but to, to, this is where Bible scholarship really does come into its own. You understand there were, these were written by different authors, conveying different primary messages um, and coming through a slightly different lens. The mindset of the time was that Satan essentially was a dog on the leash of God. He was under control, but now and again, he'd be given a bit more space to work. But the paradigm is God has his sovereign permissive will, which allows people to make their own choices. Uh, Satan is free to work within that realm, but he's not making the choices either. David is the one making the choices. So it was David who perpetrated the act. It was Satan who prompted him, but God who permitted it. So this is the paradigm under which they work and which continues largely to this day. Uh, go off to a side note on that one. It's a separate message. Okay, let's carry on. So they did the census and between Israel and Judah, they counted 1.6 million men able to wield a sword. So they obviously weren't all the prime time. The number in Samuel differs a little bit because they were counting the sort of the younger eligible fighting men. But this is counting all of the men who were able to literally pick their sword up. So 1.6 million. That's a lot of swords and a lot of fighting that they could... What gets me is David gets the guilt at this point. He waits until he gets the count. 
And I, it frustrates me about human nature. Why do we always wait till we've finished this thing that we've sort of committed to? We get to the end of it where we've had our little moment and then we go, oh, I feel really bad about that God. Why don't we pull ourselves up before we get, we know where this is heading. We know what's gonna look like when we get to the end of that road. If, that's, that's a sailor moment for yourself to work that one out. But it goes on in verse, uh, verse eight of chapter 21. And David said to God, getting a dose of the guilt, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant. He didn't say sin, he said iniquity, which is key. For I have acted very foolishly. Yes, you have. Iniquity. Why didn't he just say, take away my sins? In the Psalms, he says, cleanse me of my sin. But here he uses this word iniquity, a key word in the Hebrew. Now, because iniquity is a process of doing the wrong thing, not just an act, a single act. It's a commitment to a path. Iniquity is a lifestyle. Iniquity is a process that you go through. If you pull the word apart in Hebrew, it's the word avon. Uh, we in English add the O to that, but there's only three actual letters in there. And back in their time, they didn't have uh, script the way we do. They had uh, little characters, look like hieroglyphs on an Egyptian thing, uh, like cartoon characters. And the three letters were ayin, vav and nun. And you begin to see in the Hebrew because they used to use their words as a descriptor of what was going on. So the words and the pictures would de depict the process or the action. So ayin means an eye, vav meant a nail or a shepherd's crook. So it was, you could fasten something with that. And noon was a seed or that could multiply or fish. And it was depicted like a one fish, then two fish, and then like three fish. So one becomes many. And so the inference of the word is what the eye hooks to multiplies. Right? It's a process. Iniquity is not just an action. It's my eye is hooking to something and that thing begins to grow in my life. And so he's done this. He's allowed this act to grow in his life. It carries over to the New Testament. James in chapter one says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted. So we wonder sometimes, can the devil work in the life of a Christian? Yes, he can, because he tempts all of us. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The eye hooks onto that. We hear the temptation, we receive the temptation and we, we grasp it. Then desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin and when sin is fully grown brings forth death, the ramifications of the action. So what the eye hooks on do multiply. It always starts as something small and every major fall in our life starts this way. It'll start as something, we don't normally jump into and we don't wake up one day and go, oh, I've been married two years, I think I might have an affair today. No one in their right mind does that. You know there are 23 steps to an affair you realise that 23 steps, and normally we're in step 15 before we've even touched the other person. It's all in here. It's all in here. And you, you process what the eye hooks onto, multiplies, and eventually it grows into an action. And this is the way it goes. And it can be so many things. In our life, uh, faithful Christian people, it, it can be the slow and sort of the small de-emphasis on what we used to do that was right. Things like prayer, we might go, Look, it's a victimless crime. No one knows. It's just between me and God. You know, it's, it's, that's what I do first thing in the morning is no one's business. But we find we de-emphasise that and we fill it up with something else. It might be an unwillingness to sacrifice the time and the effort that's just normal Christian life for God's causes. And we swap it for convenience. We go, oh, look, 
it's winter time. It's only 24 degrees outside and sunny. I, it's, it's too too cold for church. You know, it could, whatever it is, it's just like we just lose the heat off the stuff that normally if we're on fire, we wouldn't consider it. It's just those small little things. We might measure our bank account or our superannuation fund more than the generosity that we know should be going towards God's causes. We might find ourselves adopting the language of the world, the priorities of the world, the things that matter most are the things to the world become the things that matter most to us. It might be looking at the wrong things, it might be longing for the wrong things, but it never stays there because what the eye is allowed to dwell on, what the eye beholds, it becomes. The eye hooks onto multiplies. And it always starts this way. And we say, no, this is not an issue for me, Pat. You don't understand. I'm managing it. Well, if you're managing it, stop it. Can you stop it? Because if you can't stop it, it owns you. You might say, I have the power of my choice. Well, how about you exercise that choice? Well, who's owning who here? And the Bible says what, we're a slave to the one that we obey. If you're obeying it out of habit, you're already a slave to it. And so we need to make the choice to deal with that thing. And for David, his issue is pride. You think, what's the, what's the big deal about pride? Well, you find if you're one of those sorts of people who have said in your life, remember last week we had, for those who were here, we had uh, Paul Gibbs talking about the kingdom-centric life versus the Christian-centric life. And it's like, is there much difference between those two? Well, the kingdom-centric life person will say things like, Lord, whatever it takes, whatever pathway you have for me, whatever it is you want me to do, I'm in. Just tell me, how high and I'll jump. Tell me left or tell me, and it's like, I'm all in. There's no reservations, there's no caveats wrapped around that. It's not if it's convenient, it's I'm all in. And if you're one of those sorts of people, and there are many in the room that are like that, you'll see things that other people won't see. You'll see fruitfulness, you'll see blessings, and you'll see troubles and you'll see processes where God takes you because He needs to get you where He needs you to go to see that fruit. So He'll take you through journeys that people who haven't made that choice the Christian-centric folk, good people, still going to heaven, it's not about that, they won't understand what you're going through and you'll wish they did because sometimes it's really tough and some, but sometimes the journey you go through sees blessings that they'll never see. But this is the difference between those two lifestyles and David's one of those guys. It's like, I'm all in. So he's now, there's a different set of things that God treats as very, very important and one of them is pride. It's massive. And the trouble with pride is it's invisible. We're the last one to see it. Everyone else can see it. Everyone else, it's like having a, a, a bit of paper stuck to your forehead and you don't even know it's there. And everyone's looking at you going, what's with the paper, man? It's like, that's what pride's like in our life. And Joab's trying to feed this back to Dave. Dude, no, don't, don't go down this path. But David can't see it until it's all, it's all over and done with. But pride, when it works in our heart, it's... it's you may identify it as things like jealousy. Anyone ever get the green eyes where you, where you look at what someone else has got or you, or you compare yourself to someone else and you either feel good about yourself because you are doing better and you're better looking or you've just pushed harder in life or you may feel insecure because you're not measuring up against somebody else. That's all pride. That's, it's a human-centric comparative system of thinking. Insecurity, haughtiness, it's all pride. You might feel bad with pride, you might feel good with pride. But it's one of those unseen sins that God will actually take the initiative to deal with if we don't deal with it ourselves. And it's a whole series of messages on its own. But 1 Peter 5.5 5 sums it up. Clothe yourselves with humility. In other words, make the choice because your heart will never on its own choose to do this. We need to, we need to clothe ourselves 
with the character of humility. We need to do what humility requires because the human heart tends to lean into pride. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's, it's God's hand will actually come against those who harbour this thing called pride. And you can choose to deal with it yourself, which is by far the better path. Or in the end, if you prayed that prayer of I'm all in, God will for your sake and the sake of the world deal with it in you. And um, take it from me who's been down that second path. You don't want to go there. If there's any way to avoid it, just deal with it. Heads up. All right. 1 Chronicles 21, 16, it goes on. David finally realises he needs to do something. And David lifts his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing uh, between earth and heaven and in his hand was a drawn sword. And this wasn't a decorative sword. This was a sword of death and plague. And it was stretched out over Jerusalem. So this is a big honking angel. This isn't, this isn't Michael Landon in one of our American sort of sitcoms with wings behind his back. This guy, would, would it, you fear and shake when you see them. That's why the first thing they always say normally is don't be afraid. It's like, but dude, these are big, monstrous, powerful, imbued with the glory and the power of God. And this one has been given permission to judge. And he's, and he's taken down 70,000 people in a plague. God came to David and said, how do you want to pay for this, mate? You've got three ways to do it. You know, you, you can be cast out of your city and, and pursued by man. You can have this or that. And David's just gone, look, I'd, even in my worst day, I'd rather be under the hand of God than be subject to crummy men and what they might do to me. So whatever it is you'll do, you'll, you'll do. And so it was a plague and 70,000 people had already died. And this angel who was doing that, Let's not, let's not sidetrack down the how can this happen thing. How can a good God allow this to happen? It's a different paradigm. It's a different revelation. It's a different covenant. But he stops at this threshing floor. And that's where they, where they separate the wheat from the chaff. And in, in Scripture, often the, the threshing floor is a moment of judgment. It's a moment of separating who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong. It's judgment time, threshing floor. And the angel stops there and Jerusalem's just there. And he's like that. It's a coming. And David sees that and he's completely shaken. So it says, um, oh, I've already read that one, haven't I? And David lifted his eyes, saw the angel. So he decides to get the crew in. Say, guys, we need to be praying. We need to be repenting. And he gets all these, his prime team together and they do that. And they come to this threshing floor and they realise that's a place where we've got to build an altar for God to, to remind us about all this stuff. So the threshing floor is owned by a fellow called Ornan. He, if you read the passage, he sees the angel too. Whoa! He's a bit too close for comfort. He could probably clean his shoe, you know, from, from down there. Then he sees David, the king. This is the guy. Now he, he's like, I'm out. I'm out. Like, get me out of this. Whatever this is, this is way above my pay grade. Um, I'll give you the threshing floor. I'll give you some cows. You can burn them. I'll give you my house. Burn that. Where's my sons? You can have them as well. You know, it's like, just get me out of here. This thing's too big for me. He just wants to get this thing over with. And we reflect for a moment the the reaction of this guy and we realise that this journey that we take of this, this unseen sin that's now developed into something else, if only it was just us that got affected, If only once we get to the point where we want to repent, it's just us and can still remain hidden. But quite often, if we've allowed it to go that far, this becomes a public public thing. And we realise that these actions that I've taken that began in such a grey area, unseen area, now have affected so many people, so many people, our families, uh, the people we work with, 
the things that should have happened that never will now, all these sorts that we realise, and that's on me, that's on us. And it weighs really heavy. But then it's too late at that point just to say sorry and forget it. Now, now there's ramifications to all this. And so this guy he says, David, you can have a free hit. Here's, here's the whole thing, just get it over and just make this angel go away. But King David said to Ornan in verse 24, no, 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 no. But I will buy them for, a, for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours. So I'm not gonna let you pay out of your thing to give to God, because this is between me and him, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So this is the heart of repentance now. Everything's bad, it's all, it's all a bust, but his heart, after God's own heart, comes out and this is what it begins to look like. If there's a price to pay, I'm not making you pay for it. I'll pay this price, thank you very much. So there's, a, there's an owning of the response. Now and again, we try, to, we try to pull the naive Christian thing and we just sort of say, well, I did wrong, yeah, but don't be angry because you're supposed to forgive, right? But that's not, that's not my call. That's between you and God. I can't demand grace of people. I can accept it, it can be freely given, and I can't earn it, but there are things that I have to do that are my responsibility because I broke this thing, it's my mess and I've got to clean it up somehow. The guy might come and say, I've had an affair with the secretary, sorry about that, to his wife. Can we move on now? No, no, we can't move on. You can't just wipe this away because now there's damage that's been done. There's trust that's been broken. You've broken a covenant now. You can't just unbreak that. You can't demand that someone pays a price for your sin. There's something, and I'm not talking about the forgiveness that God gives us now. I'm talking about rebuilding and cleaning up the messes in our life that we make. You had your chance way back then to deal with that in private. Now it's public. Now you've hurt me and everyone else around me. So now we've got to deal with this and it's, and it's you know, our price to pay. So grace is freely offered, but we can't demand it. Interesting dynamic. So David knew all this and he knew that what we offer God, what we offer God is ours alone. And this is very important for Christians. We need to really understand this because sometimes we can do the right things and still do them in the wrong way. But I can only give to God what's mine to give. I can't give to God what's yours to give. And you've got to tease this out. What does this really mean for my life? So it means that when I'm at work, I don't, I don't use my work time to do God's work. When I'm work, if I'm an employee, I'm 100% committed to what I'm doing. Not only am I not wasting time, I'm not using that time for something that's good out there because this is what's good, is to be a faithful employee. If I'm in business and you get the, the you, life is different when you're in business. Your financial things work differently. You're not paid a paycheck and all these sorts of things. But sometimes in business we can say, I'll give to God whatever's tax deductible because it comes off the top line, doesn't it? And, that, and my tax is doing it. But, but if I've got to pay tax on it, I'm not doing that. Hang on a sec. Give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is his. Hey, if, if it's a problem that you've got to pay tax on it, then give less. Compensate for that because that's all you can afford to give. That's fine. But don't restrict giving to what's tax deductible. This really hits the wallet now, doesn't it? So I give to God what's God's and what's mine to give him, not someone else's, not the tax department. What is Caesar's goes to Caesar. It means for me, I don't sacrifice my family on the altar of church, which would be so admirable to do. 
Oh, what a great guy. He just gives so much time. No, I don't do that. That's family's time and it's wrong to do that. But I don't sacrifice church on the altar of my family either. So it's like, okay, let's get this. Let's be sober about this. Let's be prayerful about all this sort of stuff. So David was offered a free hit, but our heart stands before God on its own and he wouldn't allow that to happen. At some point, as he found out, our convenience is going to be questioned. The convenience of Christian life will be questioned. At some point, there's skin to be had in the game. And the challenge is in Western life, this life, um, we've made Christian life very convenient. It's great. Look at the lights. Look at the computers up the back and the screens and the great seats and the air conditioning and a soundproof building. And it's fantastic. In fact, it's so convenient, it takes the edge off. It takes the sacrifice off. And instead of doing whatever it can take to be in God's house with God's people, because one thing have I desired, you know, take me to the Lord's house where His people gather. Suddenly it becomes an issue now because it's so convenient, I'll go when it's convenient. And that edge comes off, doesn't it? I know it's... It, don't feel bad about it, it doesn't help. It's just, but this is the environment we've created. And now we find ourselves in a, in a situation in the Western church, in the Australian church, we've set the bar so low about what we call a committed Christian. They come to church once a month or, or whatever it is. We've, now the, the air is out of the balloon. Now the, the temperature is so low, we don't even know whether we're hot or cold anymore because who can tell the difference? And this is not how the kingdom's gonna advance. So what do we do? Deflate the balloon and build a new one all together? Do we just cheese everybody off and say, here's a requirement? No, well, hopefully not. But there's, there's, a, there's an element where we need to move the dial more towards kingdom-centric life in a way that God is calling us to do. So it requires, in this moment, this cultural moment, uh, it's, it's, I'm hesitating to say make or break, but it, we are at a, at a, at a crucial juncture in, the, in church life. Our church is as well, as I've said, but, but broadly speaking, we're doing so much better by all, those, all the measurements than, than normally what's going on out there. But still the question will remain, are we kingdom-centric people and how would we know? Are we doing what the mission commands? Are we multiplying? Are we discipling? Are we taking who God's made us to be? He's invested your whole life in who you are now. Are we taking that and am I planting that as a seed into someone else's life so they can grow like that as well? Tough questions and I have to ask myself them as well. But at some point, there's, there's some skin to be had in this Christian game. Oh, salvation is free, absolutely. Thank you, Jesus. But he said, yeah, but that cross that, you just, that I'm going to, we've got a cross as well. What does that look like for us? Is it convenient? I would say that convenience is gonna be questioned. And I'll, I'll give an illustration, and, and it's by no means an illustration to say, look at me, I'm, I'm whatever. It's just, a, it's just the skin I had to put in the game this time, and there'll be more later on. But when Trish and I were called to lead this church, it was a very clear word from God, very clear. Uh, it was so clear that within an hour of me getting that word, I, I rang my current church and resigned on the spot based on a word of God. No one enjoyed that decision. No one was happy with me. No one agreed with me, except Trish. It was great. Um, but we had a moment because only a couple of years earlier, we, we'd been in a fantastic work environment at church. Best environment ever. There was 25 staff. I could do what I wanted to do. There was no pressure. It was, you know, it was, it was easy street. And then the Lord called us up to the far northern end of Brisbane, as far away as we could possibly go, 
uh, and still stay with water turned on and power. You know, so we're, we're sort of up there. This is where God's called us to be. And, and so we sold our house. We sold it in a bit of a rush and we didn't do too well on it because we just, for us, you've got, to get, you've got to have skin in the game. You can't just say, I'm a pastor. I'll be there for a few years and then I'll go take a better offer. It's all in or it's nothing, right? So we're not going to rent our house out and rent up there. We're going to buy up there. So we sold our house. Didn't do too well on that. Did pretty badly, to be honest. But we were moving to a cheaper area so we could do okay. So we bought a house, as we do, a fixer-upper. And so I fixed her upper. I invested a, a couple of years in, in doing the place up and all the stuff. Then God, what was He thinking? And why couldn't He tell me two years earlier, He's going to call me back here. I could have kept this beautiful house. There was a cracker up at Cinnamon Park, top of the hill, beautiful spot. That market had boomed and where I'd gone hadn't done anything. There was no boom, it was more like a puff. It hadn't done anything, right? So, so now I'm priced out of the market. Now we're coming back and it's like, Trish and I had a moment. Hang on, God, A, could you not have told us this a couple of years ago because it would have been much more helpful. We could have just gone back into our old house and been fine, thank you very much. Live like a Kenmore person. Or, or you know, what's the deal? Because we, we, we added up the, the, the gross benefit of us doing that moving back again. In the end, it had five zeros on it and a number at the end. But what do you do? It's do you take up your cross, do you follow the call or do you not? The price that you pay is, is irrelevant because the life of blessing and the blessing that comes isn't always the same as the, the people who haven't prayed that prayer. It's a, they get different blessings, I've noticed. Because Trish and I aren't rich, you may have noticed that. <laughs> but the blessings are different. But you're the blessing. You. This wouldn't have happened if we hadn't have done that. How do I put a value on what God's done in your life in this church and those of us who are committed and the kids that are growing up? You'd pay any price for that. I feel stupid even mentioning it. But we've got to understand that this is leadership. Leadership is servanthood. Leadership is counting, is just, I'm all in or, or I can't fake this thing. I can't ask people to do what I won't do. I can't ask you to do four or six hours a week volunteering for the church if I just give to the church, what are my staff hours? Oh, 37 and a half hours a week. How are we going to build a church on that? No, I've got to give at least as much as you, maybe twice as much. Otherwise, I can't get up and talk about it. It's credibility in the kingdom, isn't it? At some point, our convenience in life is going to be questioned and questioned hard. And if it hurts too much, we've got to question why it hurts too much. So he only gave what was going to what he alone could give. But it goes further. He says, I won't offer that which costs me nothing because nothing of significance comes without sacrifice. So I'm not talking about earning God's blessing here. We don't earn blessing, but a pure heart makes room for blessing. It's like I'm getting all this little stuff out of my life. So I've got room for it. You can have the blessing that comes at, 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 from your hard work and your pushing and your, all the stuff. You can have that blessing. That's the world's blessing. And the world will bless your hard work. The world will bless your intelligence and your, your ambition. The, Lord, the world will do that. But what man makes, man maintains. What God makes bears incredible fruit and will last for eternity. And you've got to choose, what do I want? What does blessing look like for me? Abraham was tested on this to be the father of nations. He was tested on his son. Sort of man-made fruit, if you could put it that way. 
God didn't need Isaac to be offered for a sacrifice. He wasn't interested in a dead boy on an altar. He didn't care about any of that stuff, but he was very interested in Abraham's heart. Do you have the heart that can steward the blessing of the magnitude that I have for you? Because you need to clear that heart out so you can fit it in. It's fascinating. And so many times I hear stories that, that are something like, you know, God prompted me to clean up a few little areas of my life. And this is what it looks like when we deal with it, we take the initiative. God prompted me to just to fix this. No one knew about it, but I did all these little things. Suddenly, all this blessing comes into my life that I couldn't have made this stuff up. Where have all these doors, are, all this stuff's coming in? Or I chose to put God first and amazing doors opened that would never open before. But to experience the fullness of that blessing, that type of blessing, God's blessing, we need to give in the fullness of our life. You haven't earned it, you've made room for it. Very different mindset. And what we find is that, generally speaking, the area in which you have faith is the area that attracts the blessing. It's, it's fascinating how this works. Because faith, the life of faith makes room for blessing. It doesn't earn it, it makes room for it. So if you're looking for career advancement, if that's the thing that you need the most, then what do you do? You clear out all the mess. You stop grumbling about the life that you haven't got and you give all you have to the faithfully serving in the place where God's got you. If you want to start enjoying church life, if you're sick of my preaching and you're sick of all, anything like that, you know how you, you get that fruit back in your life? You commit yourself to it deeply. It's a fascinating principle. Need financial blessing? Continue to trust God with the small amount of finances that you have and, and show him how faithful you are with a little so he can say, you're faithful, I'm gonna give you a lot more. This is the principle. We're faithful, we invest in what we have so he can give us more. If someone's ruining your life, you know how you just have those personalities that just drive you crazy. You think, God, just get rid of them out of my life. They're a boat anchor or they're a, they're a frustration to me. And he says, hang on, well, A, that person's probably growing you in something, but why don't you invest, rather than me getting them out of the way, why don't you invest in blessing them? Why don't you listen to them? Why don't you walk in their shoes? Why don't you try and understand why they are the way they are? Maybe you're, it's your fault for ticking them off. Who knows? But then we, we find that we invest in that way that God blesses because it opens up a blessing that we could never manufacture on our own. So as the band comes up, we need to process this. And this is another one of those things that's between you and God. We're all dealing with different stuff. But it might just well be time to address the small and hidden things in your life. Do it privately before yes, it needs to go to the next level. Take this as a preemptive strike. I took plan B, for those who are wanting to know, when it comes to pride. I didn't know this stuff. And I kept pushing with all the strength and all the ambition and all the creativity that Haggerty had and all the King's men couldn't save me from what happened next. I needed to go through that. I needed to be humbled because God opposes the prayer. Deal with things privately. If the Lord's prompting you now to just clean up some areas of your life, it might be what you're looking at on a computer, it might be your finances, it might be your heart longing for what's not yours to long for. Make a choice now of faith that says, I'm gonna clear that stuff out of my life because I want God's blessing, not the blessing that sin can produce. Let's pray. Father, we rely on You. You are always good. And even though sometimes, as Hebrews says, You discipline those that You love, You do it for a purpose because the fruitfulness that awaits at the end of that path is more than we can understand. Lord, I pray that You would take away our empires, 
our need to do things the world's way and look successful like the world would tell us we need to and to get to that path, do what the world tells us we need to do. Lord, we wanna be kingdom centric. You are the King. And so Father, show us if there's an area in our life that we need to clean up and dust away. We want Your blessing. And Lord, give us the joy, give us the faith and the freedom to know it's as simple as that right here, right now. It may well be as simple as making that choice and then if you have to go home and cut off a relationship or a, an email trail or, or there's something that can be sorted out quickly, do it today. Do it today. And start Monday as a clean vessel. Father, I pray that You would fill us because Lord, when Your conviction comes as it does for our sin, it doesn't come with guilt. It doesn't come with condemnation because it comes with faith. Because when You highlight something, you give us the power to overcome. You give us what we need to fix it. So Lord, we can rejoice in that and our decisions based on faith that You meet our needs. So Lord, we bless You and we thank You that we have the choice to go the Kingdom way. Give us the faith today to do that in Jesus' Name. Amen. Amen. That was a tough message, wasn't it? Uh, need a coffee to wash that sucker down. But... Uh, if you need prayer with this, this, this can be a very, very holy moment. Sometimes you need someone to lay a hand on you and understand just a little because what you can't talk about owns you. Huh? Maybe you need to talk about it. The prayer team will be over there and they, they're trained in how to go through that process. Just to be full of the Holy Spirit, free of this. Free. Let's worship and then we'll meet together afterwards. Thanks guys.